<coughs> Oops. Come on now. If you've been going here for a while, you know that we're in this um, series called The Gospel Through the Bible. We've been doing it for nine years. Just kidding. Um, about a year, probably. I don't even know when we started. Um, and uh, we're in Jeremiah, starting today. That's on page 1169 in your Bible. However, I'm preaching on the whole book, and so I'm going to be jumping around a lot. So uh, this isn't the best day to follow along there, but you should, might want to open it in case you want to underline verses I quote or whatever. Um, so we're going to start with a kind of a, you can call it a sub-series if you want, where we're going to be going through the prophets. And this is kind of an important section, but it's also um, a necessarily negative section. And um, one of the things that I want to make sure we get on uh, out of the way right away is that um, you probably shouldn't stand for going to a church that doesn't really offend you pretty regularly. Um, my first pastor said, um, he's like, if you, if, you, if you don't get really offended at church, it's about once a month, you're just going to the wrong church. Um, mo- most people won't stand for being offended. And that's one of the things that's wrong with us, not right about us, okay? And if you read the Bible at all, one of the things you keep finding is, is that God is constantly and continually confronting the humans. Just everywhere, on every page, at every turn, at every moment, even the good news parts. Just confrontation all the time. And if, and if we were to have church for very long, without any of that, that should feel really weird, you know? Um, I was reading um, a, uh, an article this week called, talk about written for the common man, confirmation bias, a ubiquitous phenomenon in many guises. But he started out the, ar- the article with this quotation, which I like. Um, when men wish to construct or support a theory, how they torture facts into their service. Right? Um, there's, this, there's this natural human phenomenon fallen into by both political parties, both genders, all ages, where if we want bad enough to believe any particular philosophy or thought or whatever, um, how we will torture facts into our service. And um, the one proposition that we are all committed to and are all committed to the torturing of facts into our service, is the proposition that we are fantastic. We deserve for good things to happen to us, and if they don't, God is probably mean if he exists at all. And to that end, the end of self-affirmation on all levels, we are willing to put anything on the rack or in the Iron Maiden or the whatever to make it work. And so this is why the prophets are so profoundly negative in a lot of ways and why there's so many of them. (laughs) Because this issue with human beings is a ubiquitous problem with many guises. It's everywhere. It's all of us. It's all the time. It's all eras. It's it's everything, everyone, everywhere. In fact, one one of the reasons why um, 
we can look at the Old Testament, it says so many bad things about Jews, and we're not anti-Semites, is this reason. Because we don't believe that the Jews are specially bad, we believe that they're especially human. The, the Jewish people are important, not just because they're the chosen people, that they carry God's revelation, and ultimately through them comes the Savior. They're important to us because they're, they're typical. They're just like you. They're just like me. Right? And so you don't go, oh, the stupid Jews. You go, oh, stupid humans. Right? One of the ways this comes up again and again is um, in all the bubbles. Right? Do you remember, do you remember all, like, in, in the 90s, I was, like, in, I was, like, in high school, and it was, there was the big dot-com bubble. Everybody was getting rich, and then all of a sudden, everybody wasn't getting rich. Right? In 2008, no, this wasn't 2008. This is in 2003. I moved to Panama City, Florida to be a pastor there. At that time in Panama City, through till about 2006, um, housing prices went up about 10% a year. You just about set your watch by it. 10%. And I'd been doing that for like seven years before I got there. It was unbelievable. And I'd been at—not at, at, High Point. This is High Point. At Lynn Haven for about a year or so, and I thought, you know, Lex and I really ought to buy a house. It'll be tight, but we really ought to buy a house because, um, you know, we need to get on this— thing that's happening, and we're right here, and this will make, this will make sense for us. And so we were getting ready to buy this house, and Doug Pennington, who's the senior pastor of the church, I'm hoping, I'm hoping to get him to preach here eventually, but um, he, uh, he had me, we were having this meeting, and he said, I heard, did you, I heard you tell him thinking about buying a house. I was like, yeah. And he goes, he's like, well, here, here's what I want to tell you about that. He said, um, you're one of the most annoying people in the history of the world, and I might have to fire you, and I would hate it if you bought a, a house, and then I had to fire you right afterwards. And so you might, you might want to think about, you know, maybe not buying a house. I love that man. I mean, how loving is that? Much more loving than not saying anything, right? He didn't say that. He was much more delicate than that. That's just my interpretation. But what happened? Just about set you watch by it. 2008 happened, right? And it was a surprise. Okay, let me just, let me, let me just say something that should be obvious to everyone. Nothing that everybody knows about goes up at 10% a year indefinitely. It doesn't happen. It's not reality, right? Everybody should have known it. Very few people did know it. And the people who did know it were considered nuts, right? That's one of the reasons why both political parties blame the 2008 crash on the other political party, because they can always find somebody in their party that said it was coming, and lots of people in the other party that didn't, right? Because the people who said it was coming, they were just like, ah, you're raining on the parade. You don't want poor people to have houses. You don't want people to make money, depending on which party you were in. Everybody should have seen it. Nobody did. And, one of the, and we see this over and over again. I was reading um, a book the other night, just last night, about the history of the first seven ecumenical councils. And the first chapter of the book talks about how that happened in Rome right before 300. Same thing. These things happen. Governmental policies changed the game. People stopped raising crops. They kept the taxes higher. War, right? Spanish Empire. Blah, 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 blah. It's just human history. It's just human history. You know, there were like five housing bubbles. I remember we were supporting this missionary in Scotland. His name's Adam Mayberry. He'll be preaching here in May. And um, 
when the 2008 thing hit, he took this huge pay cut because what happened is our dollar did a little bit worse and the, and the Scottish pound was doing better. And so he took a 20% pay cut in like four weeks, right? And so Linhaven got hit really hard by that, but we tried to give a little bit more money because we knew he was getting killed. But in like a year, it was all evened out again. Why? Because Ireland and England had the same housing bubble and everything went haywire there too. And apparently they had one in Romania. There was one a decade before in Japan. Right? We are a people, and here's the thing. In retrospect, you go, everybody should have known that. How could you not know that? In fact, in fact I will tell you, I'll just say this. I'll just make it, I'll just play the prophet, okay? This is not a prophecy, though. I bet in six years, whatever goes down in Ukraine and Russia, we'll look back and say, idiots, we should have known that was going to happen. <sighs> So obvious. And now nobody knows what's going to happen. Right? That's humanity. And the reason for that is it's the way we think. Right? We, we think in ways that make it impossible for us to believe what's going to happen to us and what we are is what we are and what's going to happen to us. You can see it in confirmation bias. We take in all the things that agree with what we already agree with. We find a way to not agree with all the things that don't say what we already want to think. Or other, other forms of confirmation bias or groupthink. Well, if everybody agrees, we must all be okay or we must all be right. I, I always—how many times this week did you hear somebody belittle somebody else because they didn't believe in the majority opinion and the fact that it was the majority opinion was enough to prove that they were wrong? <laughs> Nothing more logically ridiculous than that. Nothing. And besides the young, the only group more commonly wrong about things is the majority. Right? Or just not thinking like, dude, everything's going fine. Let's not rain on the parade. Quit being a downer. Right? Or exceptional thinking like, well, it'll happen to everybody else, but it's not going to happen to me. I'll make some adjustment. Right? It's like I remember people saying, uh, you know, teenagers, they just don't, they don't think through what they're going to do, and they just, they do anything, and like, yeah, developmentally, that's partially true, but it's probably because we've told them that they were exceptional since the day they were born, and they think that that applies to physics. You know, it's no wonder my kids think they're the only humans in the world that don't have to practice instruments, and they're going to play in Carnegie Hall. Well, yes, all the peasants will have to practice violin, but I'll take it up at 35 and be playing in New York by 37. My daughter comes home from soccer the other day. My, my second oldest, Rachel, she's like the gazelle in the family. She got all the athletic genetics, right? And she comes back home from soccer. We put her in the soccer thing so she would learn to be a better soccer player. She comes back, she goes, she, I said, how'd it go, Rachel? She said, fine, Daddy, I scored five goals. And I said, well, did your team win? No. I was like, well— how many did you have to score for your team to win? She was like, well, probably seven. I was like, well, why didn't you score seven? And she looks at me like with this, like, oh, daddy. And I was like, no, honestly, could you have scored seven? She goes, she looks at me for a minute, kind of cockeyed. She goes, yeah. I was like, <laughs> do you want to pay the bill for this? Right? Like, I'm sorry, did I get you in a program so you could learn to coast worse? Right? But th this is—this is what you see. In fact, one of the most predictable things for an enormously talented athlete to be an unexceptionable athlete is for them to be really good young. 
It's, it's, it's decently common. It was good that Michael Jordan got cut from his basketball team. Okay? Creates drive. And drive is the most important thing in sports. It's one of the most important things in any kind of success. Right? But, you, but if you believe you're different, there's all the peasants, and then there's me. And I'm better and smarter and handsomer and better dressed than the lot of them. And you're kind of like, I'm— and everybody thinks that. It's like the Lake Wobegon thing. It's like where 80% of the kids are above average, you know? Wasn't that, wasn't that something like 80% of people rate themselves as an above average driver? Yeah. Well, so much the worse for math, right? Now, here's why this is important. You're like, kind of, Nick, what, is this a stand-up bit or are you preaching a sermon? Right? Here's, here's the reason. The whole of the prophets are enormously negative in some of the most insulting, evocative, direct, powerful, belittling ways, in, in, including enormous sarcasm, really racy stuff. Sorry, you're going to get the voice cracks because I'm on my third sinus infection for, this, for the winter. And I mean, just, it's really, I mean, you read that and be like, this is kind of negative. Mm-hmm. And here's why. Here's why. Listen. Because we will not believe it. We won't believe it. And so God keeps slowly over 450 years, slowly ratcheting it up a little more. And the, and the Israelites are like all the rest of us. They're like that six-year-old kid that doesn't want to admit that when his brother's punching him, it actually hurts. He's like, that didn't hurt. He's like, okay, fine. Hits him a little harder. He's like, that didn't hurt. And then at some point he goes, ah! He's got this huge well on his arm because the first one hurt. But he wouldn't admit it. He just was stubborn. And so here's the reason why the prophets are so powerfully negative. Because God... And it's not, listen, it's not because God is morally serious. Because if God was just morally serious, he could have thrown us all in hell right away, just like that, and been done with it. The reason the prophets are so long, there's so many of them, they're so profoundly negative, is because God is so radically compassionate. That's why. That's why it takes forever half of a millennia just to get to the exile when they deserved it like the fourth week in Joshua. And that's why it's in the Bible and that's why Jesus carries it forward and that's why it should connect with us. And the reason why it's so negative is because we will not believe it. And that's why as much as you can say, well, the prophets, aren't they predicting the future? Well, no. And you're like, well, aren't they like basically telling you what's true? No, no, no. It's not that the prophets tell us the things that we couldn't know. The prophets tell us the things we won't know. The prophets are there to tell us what ought to be as plain as the nose on our face, but that we refuse to know because we will not know them. Because if we admitted we knew them, and if we let ourselves know them, and if we saw them for what we are, we could do nothing but honor, worship, love, serve, follow God. And we don't want that. 
We don't want to accept that we have a divine identity because the divine identity dictates a divine purpose. The divine purpose dictates a divine responsibility. And the minute it dictates a divine responsibility, it, divine, it, di- it dictates a moral culpability and responsibility that we want to delete, but we can't destroy. And so we have to drop this out at the beginning. We can't even allow for an identity or a create—we can't allow for any of that because it follows inextricably to moral responsibility and divine control on a level we are not interested in. It says in um, Jeremiah 5, 3, he says, oh, he says, Oh Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You struck them, but they felt no pain. You crushed them, but they refused correction, right? They're like the six-year-old who goes, that didn't hurt. They made their faces harder than stone, and they refused to repent. I thought, these are only the poor. They're foolish, for they don't know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. He said, yeah, but okay, so all these people, they suffered, because God had brought real suffering into their lives. And he said, and and the prophets had said, the reason this has happened is because God is disciplining you. You need to turn to him. And they go, eh, I don't really think so. Right? And he goes, well, surely this is because these are peasants, and they haven't read the Bible. So I'll go talk to the educated people because they actually know more and surely they will say, oh, you're right. Right? And he says, so I will go to the leaders and speak to them. Surely they know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. But with one accord, they too had broken off the yoke and torn off the bonds. Now, the reference to yoke and bonds there, that's not a positive reference to freedom from slavery. Right? What he's saying is that they were morally bound to their identity in what God had created them and made them to be. And the yoke that was on them was that which they had the responsibility to pull. That's what a yoke is. You put it on a cow, he pulls the plow, right? He's like, there's a, there's a yoke that God put on them. Jesus didn't say, I took away your yoke. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, the gospel, makes the burden of humanity light, but it doesn't take away what you're made for. It's supposed to be there. And they don't want to—they don't want any of it. There's one—and this is—you want to solve here. You want to solve the human problem of disunity? You want to all get along? Here's something we all get along about. We will not hear this. We are all one people, one nation, one fraternity and sorority. We are all one in this. We will not hear that God has created us for a purpose, that he's put a responsibility on and in us, and that there's a moral dictate to that, which should bring us the greatest possible pleasure imaginable, and yet we really deep down want to be free of. That doesn't, that's not an encouraging way to be unified. But it is a way that we're unified. So I want to go through this in four parts. It's going to take me two weeks to do this, empirically speaking, from the last service, but I knew that was going to happen. And so this week is going to be negative, and two weeks from now when I finish, it's going to be more positive. Um, and I want to use um, a medical metaphor because this is one that comes up again and again in Jeremiah. One of the things that Jeremiah talks about a number of times is he, he looks at it like a medical thing. Like, there are these symptoms, there's this pain that you're suffering— There's a real identity to your sickness, what's really killing you. There is a cure to this, 
and there is a course of treatment that you have to enter into, right? So I want to talk about the first two this morning and the next two in a couple of weeks, okay? So the first is, is that you just, you've got to face the symptoms. You see, the problem here isn't that they don't want to hear what the doctor has to say. They don't want to go to the doctor, right? Have you met, you know, people like this? People die in hospitals, right? They don't, it'll clear up. How long have you had it? Four months, right? It'll clear up. Which I understand that. I don't like going to the doctor because, frankly, I'm too cheap to pay copays, which is their whole purpose they exist, right? And, um, <clears throat> there's, this, there's this idea in here where he basically says they've hardened their heads like it's rock, right? And so we can call it confirmation bias because that sounds a little bit more psychologically sophisticated, but here's what God basically calls it. Stubbornness. That the biggest problem of humanity is not just sin, but the thing that makes the sin wound incurable is the profound self-deceiving stubbornness that it creates. Your greatest enemy actually isn't your sin of choice, whatever that is. Whether it's looking at pornography on the computer or yelling at your spouse or conniving people or lying to get your way or gossiping to make sure you're in the inner part of the social circle, blah, 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 blah. Whatever it is, it's ugly, but it's not the thing that's really going to kill you. The thing that's really going to kill you is the self-deception that it's not that big a deal, that God shouldn't be angry at you about it, that it should—that you shouldn't have to change, and that your ability to self-deceive yourself, that it's just not—it just nothing has to happen. It's just fine. That's what kills. It's the stubbornness, right? So it makes parenting so hard, right? Correcting kids isn't hard. Yet don't hit that person, right? It's the—it's the stubbornness. It's the unwillingness to learn, right? You start getting kids in— Seven, eight, nine, ten, and on, on up, and they start, you start like, okay, you're going to get to learn this the hard way, right? It's heartbreaking because it's the, the main reason it's heartbreaking isn't because they have to learn the lesson. Lessons have costs. Some lessons you got to learn, and if the cost is high, you got to pay it. But so many lessons, the cost is so low that you have to pay, right? But they, we still, we still want to pay it up there. We're going to pay, we're going to pay that for, right? Drives me nuts. I remember when I was 19, I was doing, I was doing my devotions. One of the things I prayed every day was, and I wrote this in my journal so many times, God, I do not want to learn every lesson the hard way. I just don't want that. And it's not because I was godly. It was because I was lazy. I just didn't, I didn't want to have to go through all that pain. And God had gotten a hold of me enough not to make me righteous, but he'd gotten a hold of me enough to terrify me of what stubbornness does. It creates an enormous amount of pain, and I just didn't want to pay it. Which got me ready a little bit to listen. There's a number of ways that God argues this, but one of the main things to look at here is this. When we hear about the doctrine of God's wrath, that is God's moral seriousness and his willingness to execute on it, um, would it, because of the confirmation bias in the human heart, do you know what it does? It produces the opposite conviction in us. It's a little ironic, okay? Think about this. If you—what has the hell language and the punishment language in the Bible actually produced in the minds of modern Americans? Irreligious and religious. What is actually done? Right? 
modern irreligious Americans use that language to solidly persuade themselves that there will be no wrath because there is no God or no God like that, right? So they take the wrath language and they take the biblical claim that God says that he is a morally just and loving God. And they say this very cleverly. My six-year-old can do this. Um, Oh, well, if God is loving, he can't punish like that. And an eternal punishment could never possibly be just. Therefore, the doctrine of God and this are incoherent with each other. Therefore, neither are true. I'm free. Do you see the irony of that? The irony of that is God says, listen, I'm loving, so I'm going to tell you this. I'm loving and just, so I'm going to tell you what you're careening towards. Because I don't want it for you, but this is what it will produce. And so please listen and turn around because I'm not going to give up my moral justice so that you can have the little life you've picked out for you, okay? So come to me, right? And what do we produce in our confirmation bias? My confirmation bias is I'm fantastic. God should be nice to me. Things should go right for me. I take that and I go, this against that goes under here, I keep what I want to say, that's out. That's what we actually do. And listen, I'm not just talking about irreligious people. You and I do that too. We just do it a little bit more convoluted and a little less because we want to keep the doctrine of heaven. So because, because I'm fantastic and God should do good stuff to me, I want, I'm going to believe in heaven. It is, a little, it is a little logically inconsistent to throw away hell and keep heaven because <clears throat> it's the same book and passages that promise both. So I'm gonna amp down hell a lot because theoretically I can amp down heaven a lot. It's still pretty good, right? But I certainly don't want the kind of heaven where God controls everything. I want the kind of heaven where there's like a Starbucks and a Panera and I can go where I want, right? So we'll just have more choice in both of them, you know, and kind of slice this through and then we'll say certainly Certainly the Bible is just amping up this language hyperbolically, right? It's like overstating it, and so it's not nearly going to be quite that bad or anything, and so we'll pull this down to the size I like. And, and then say, who can really know? Pull way back in some of the passages the clarity of the two places and be like, well, you know, so you can still keep this for the really bad people, like, you know, whatever. And— <laughs> And then, you know, everybody else is here, and then people won't just prove of me at cocktail parties. I can believe in heaven. I'll be a good, respectable person, and they won't call me one of those dirty fundamentalists. I get everything, and I'm fantastic. And so when God makes this argument to Israel, he's making an argument. He's not—he's not being like, look, I'm going to kill you. He's like, listen, listen to me. I'm making an argument. Like, you can think this through. Like, I'm telling you—now, listen, his argument is this, and this is very important to understand. He's saying, if I am morally chargeable with something, it is that I am way, way, way too lenient. That I don't act. I don't execute the justice. I hold back. It's not bad enough. I'm just—if you're going to accuse me of something, it really ought to be that I'm some kind of moral pansy, is basically the argument God is making. Not that he's too morally serious. He's so slow to bring about judgment. He has so many chances. It's like that parent that annoys you in the mall, right? And you kind of— would you just take your kid to the SUV and like lock them in that car seat and leave them there till Tuesday? 
I mean, how much is she going to put up with? Like, they're running around, they're pulling stuff off racks, they're hitting other kids, and you're like, oh, sweetie, don't do that. Right? And, God, and God's like, listen, if you're going to accuse me of something, it ought to be that. You see what he's saying? He's saying it's the opposite. And he's saying the reason you think that is because of the confirmation bias. It's because of our stubbornness. We, it's not something we can't know. It's something we won't know. We won't know it so intensely that we can actually make it prove the opposite of what he actually says. <laughs> We're clever. So Satan. So here's one passage, right? Why should I forgive you? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by gods that are not gods. Supplied, I supplied all their needs, yet they committed adultery and thronged to the houses of the prostitutes. They are well-fed—this is a little racy. This is some of that language I was talking about. They are well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for another man's wife. Notice, I want—and here's one of the connections you'll see all through the prophets if you, if you read them. The connection between idolatry— Worshiping nothing or worshiping something that isn't the one true God and injustice. And now before you get too far down the road with that, especially if you're under 40, what I mean by injustice is this. Everything the Bible says is sin, God claims is injustice. So it's not like your five favorites, like sex trafficking, income inequality. What's a good Republican one? I don't know. Overcontorted markets or something like you put your little things in there and you got like the five that you like right Here, here's the thing those are probably on god's list They are the things that you really bother you about the injustice in the world are probably on god's list So are 576 other things Because in the bible everything that is called sin Is by definition the destruction of the peace and justice god creates in the fabric of his world Therefore when you gossip about somebody that's injustice you are effacing their divine image for your own gain by destroying them to ingratiate yourself to somebody who, if they listen to your gossip, you should never be ingratiating yourself to. And you're doing it in such a fragile way that it doesn't get you anywhere, and you're, re you're, really, you're willing to offend the divine image in a creative human to get that paltry, bitter snack of get-aheadedness. That's injustice. And so is sex trafficking. And so are probably some forms of income inequality. And so are people stealing from some to give to others. And so is all that stuff. And what the prophets argue is it is always produced by idolatry. The only real systemic cure for all injustices is the risen Christ and the God who is and the only, and what will always produce injustice is idolatry. That's the claim of Jeremiah and all the prophets and all of the Bible. And that's why injustice and idolatry are always side by side. Adultery isn't just sin, it's injustice. And so he says this in verse 9. Look for yourselves. He, he, he describes reality. He says, now look at that. Should I not punish for this? Like, use your own judgment. Like, look at it the way I see it. Right? Should I not? Because here's what he knows. When people do something against you, you get really mad. That's what he knows, right? 
I mean, I know people that would, would push the self-destruction button on somebody else for cutting them off in traffic. Somebody does something to me. I can't tell you the sense of injustice I felt yesterday when the ref made a bad call against my girls' basketball team that I was coaching. I mean, I didn't throw a chair at him because I was afraid I'd hit somebody else. But I, but I, I mean, I was like, oh, that's so unjust. I mean, I felt so angry. And I was like, okay, you know what? He's probably still a better ref than I am a coach. So let's just let this go, right? But, but I felt, you feel this awakening of like, ah! And he goes, okay, now listen, look at it from my perspective. This is what you're like. And I'm supposed to be like, whatever. You see the argument? The argument is, if I'm anything, I'm a pansy, he's saying. He's saying, if you're going to charge me with something, it's that I don't act. I don't punish. I don't execute what is deserved, right? He says that again in another place. He talks about all kinds of stuff that people do. They, they, he says they weary themselves. They, t- they sin so much, they just tire themselves out with it. He says, should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? And he says, I will weep and wail. And he talks about the, the land that he's going to pull them out of, and he says that he's going to, he personally will, will, is going to mourn for what, for what happens to them. But he said, there certainly is not a claim of injustice here. Not a good one. And the argument all along is he says, that's reality, but here's what we do. He says, what human beings do, here's the symptom, is we harden ourselves. We say, no, I'm not going to listen to this. That's not right. I'm not that bad. That's an ancient book. That probably wasn't even God speaking anyway. I'm much better than my neighbors. There's some real jerks at my work, but I'm a, I'm a good guy. You know? My wife's unhappiness is pretty much her fault. My husband's unhappiness is his fault. You know? My kids are like not well-behaved, but that's just because they won't listen. I tell them all kinds of fantastic things, you know, or whatever. He says they made their faces harder, harder than stone, and they refused to repent. And then he ta- starts talking about the pastors, basically, right? And he says that they're, they're the ones who are supposed to be bringing reform, and they're totally complicit. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain, right? That's the businessmen, right? No, it's the prophets and the priests alike. They all practice deceit. In case you're one of those people who think that Foucault and Voltaire were just so clever because they said that there were bad priests and pastors and stuff in the 1700s and that. Listen, Jeremiah is 2,500 years ahead of those guys. They're not exactly the sharpest knives in the drawer, okay? The Bible has the first and best critique of religion ever in the history of Western and Eastern literature. God said, here's part of the problem with my people. My people have, they have pastors and they've got people who are supposed to speak to the truth to them. And those people have become complicit. Because what's the best way for me to prove that I'm a fantastic person? If I'm, a, if, if I'm in the role of prophet, right, I'm supposed to tell the truth. I'm supposed to help us see things we can't see. What's the number one thing? But what's the number one thing that I need for my other proposition? The belief that I'm fantastic. I need you to tell me I'm fantastic. And I need you to show up to show me I'm fantastic. Right? That's what I need. And so if you don't come here, if you don't tell me afterwards that my pastor, that was a wonderful sermon. It just, it was, just, just tickled me. Just spiritually, it was wonderful. Right? Um, and so he says, so here's what the pastors say. 
They take the wound my people have. This, they have this wound that's festering and killing them. And they, they just take a bandage and they just cover it over so you can't smell the stink of it rotting and becoming gangrenous. Nice, white, sterile wrapping. And they say, you're going to be fine. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. The nation's falling apart. There's an army coming from Babylon to destroy the city. Everything's going wrong. And the prophets go, it's going to be fine. Don't you love me? Right? And then he says in verse 22, a few verses later, he says, is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? He's like, he's like, listen, you've got this place up in Gilead where they have all the best ointments in the Near East that heal all kinds of things, and yet you're sick, and you can't find healing. Is, is, what, is there no treatment there? You couldn't go to John Hopkins for that? You see what he's saying? Think about it. What are the most painful things that we all suffer? Are most of them are from physicality? Well, some of, I mean, there's a lot of people that do have chronic pain, but not near as many as the suffering that's produced from social ills that come from our sinful actions and injustice we perpetrate on each other because of our idolatry. Almost all the greatest pains in humanity, it, this has always been true, has come from the defect of the human heart through idolatry to produce injustice to destroy each other. And that has always been pain creator number one, and nothing has ever come close. And he says, is there no, is there no, you, can you not go to Walgreens and get an ointment for that? Because the pastors seem to be saying that everything's pretty much okay, and just hang in there, and let me read you a couple positive statements out of some book, and we'll all feel good about ourselves. Right? And he goes, you ought to get an ointment for that. Oh wait, there isn't one. Right? And not only does he critique the pastors, he also critiques religion. He's like, I did not—God is essentially saying, I did not create religious hypocrisy. I created truth connected to trust, to where I would be people's God and they would be my people, and it would produce peace and justice and hope and goodness, and then they made it into something hypocritical that we can call religion. Right? He says this, don't trust—Jeremiah is talking to the people, he says, don't trust in deceptive words. He says, don't say, this is the temple of the Lord. The Lord is capitalized. This is the temple of Yahweh. This is the temple of Yahweh. This is the temple of Yahweh. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, and he goes on to list a bunch of injustices and changes that should be made in real life. And what's he saying? He's saying, don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. Walk in here. Sing the songs. Come on. You, you should come in here. You should sing the songs, and it should enliven you to worship the God that really is. And what that ought to produce in you is a lack of idolatry that might produce real justice because you'll go out and you'll treat people actually like they were meant to be treated, created in the image of God. But don't, he's like, don't think that because you go to the temple of the Lord, you go to the temple of the Lord, that somehow God is impressed by that. He's not. Our ability— one of the things that has always sort of surprised me is my ability and the apparent ability of many people to believe in God and to not feel like the way that they're posturing themselves with God is so easy to see through. <laughs> I mean, have you ever—like, in, in retrospect, sometimes, like, when you come to repentance on something, you'll be like, 
why did I think that was going to go? I mean, have you ever thought that? Like, I, I really was doing that thing, and in my mind it all kind of worked out, and then I realized that was really dumb, and God wasn't going to go along with it. And now I, now I look back and I go, it's all, it always surprises me when people are like, yeah, you know, I'm going to do this thing God says is totally wrong, but you know, he's probably going to get over himself, and I probably can repent later, and this is going to be much more fun this way, and I'm not really sure his commands are for today anyway, and you know, that kind of thing. And I, listen, I, I, I see that in me too. It's, you know, sometimes it's more sophisticated because I have more religious expertise. It's amazing how we feel like we can do that, and that God is like somehow this like confused, you know, like semi-insecure person that's really easy to manipulate, and you're like, yeah, dude, well, as long as you'll still like me, you should go ahead and do that, you know? Like, I, I can't understand why that would be unless that's what we're like, you know, and we're just transferring that onto God. And we think he's as insecure as us, and so therefore as easily manipulated as us, which the Bible doesn't seem to affirm, right? All right, we should move on. After he gets through critiquing religion, though, he also critiques the therapeutic, the, the sort of psychological, self-helpy kind of like, well, you know, what we really need is what works for us. Well, you know what he says about that? He goes, here's, here's the problem with what works for you is you're killing yourself, and it has nothing to do with my judgment, is what he's essentially saying in these two passages. One of the things that I think people don't often realize is that the Christian doctrine of hell— is God's stamp and ordering of damnation that for the most part has already happened in the being himself. The, the addition is the judicial consequence. We go through the, essentially the process of damnation now. We get to judgment and we get told we are what we already are. Otherwise, the judgment is unjust. And then we get placed under the judicial category of what we've become and been. We think at any point we can just change whatever we want. No, you are, you are becoming more human like you were created to be through a redemptive process or less human right now. Every decision we make either moves us towards idolatry or towards God. Every one of them affects us. Everyone affects the way we think, how we think, how we respond to the next question to the next confrontation. If we harden ourselves, the next time it gets easier to harden ourselves. The less our conscience tells us it's wrong, the easier it is for us to take another step in that direction. The more times we go, yeah, you know what, Lord, I think I'm totally wrong about this. I, apo I apologize. The easier it is the next time we're confronted to go, yep, uh, that's me being wrong again. Um, I'm ready to learn. What, would, what do you have to teach me? And the redemptive process goes along. And when we say, I'm going to do whatever I want to, I'm going to believe what I want about myself, and I'm fantastic, what he's saying is what you end up doing has built into it its own consequences, and it harms and destroys you. One of the things that God claims for himself is that our greatest good and his commanded desire for our life are the same. He claims that. If that's true, when we walk away from our commanded desire, guess what's going to happen? Oh wait, mushroom cloud. And so he says in these two passages, he says, you do this stuff, 
to your own harm. Whoops. He says, when you do this, aren't you, aren't you rather harming yourself and to your own shape? That it hurts you and you're morally culpable. Do you see the argument in that line? It's hurting you and it's to your shame. Right? The hope then is, is the, now, why all that negativity, right? The hope is that in all that negativity, you will say, these symptoms are real. That's the whole point. Because if you, if you admit that first piece, the rest follows pretty cleanly through, through. The hardest part is not the part where you accept Jesus. The hardest part is accepting you need to. And the hardest part about accepting you need to is not accepting the doctrine of depravity. It's actually accepting that the things that ought to point you to your own depravity are real evidence that don't go along with what you believe about yourself, but that would go, that would go along with what God has said about you that should point you to your depravity. The minute you accept that as data, you go, oh, that's good evidence that I'm not a very good person. Well, and the minute you accept that, you're like, ah, I'm not a very good person. What are we going to do about this? And here we go. We're already on the road. You see, the number one issue we all have isn't just for me to say, you're sinful. That's not your problem. That's not my problem, right? It's not my problem. My problem is what I will or will not accept as evidence that I'm sinful. You see, the minute I go, I had this argument with my wife. The minute I realize I was a jerk, everything follows from that. It starts with me saying, when I said this that way, I was putting her in this position where she could only say this, and then I had her. Then I could argue this, this, and this, and she had to agree to that, and here we are. Right? And then I go, that was manipulative. It's all over. Because once I realize I'm a, I'm a jerk, once I'm a jerk, I need Jesus. Once I need Jesus, I'm ready to listen to Jesus. People, people think it's, it's like, oh, you got to tell them they're sinners. No. We've got we've to first see the data. And therefore, the temptation and the demonic activity and our unwillingness to see isn't even in, I'm a good person or a bad person. That's assumed, and it's perfectly safe because we won't accept the information, the data that proves that we're not good people. Once he says this, he can go right on to the next thing and say, okay, here's the problem. You've heard it said, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He'll be like a tree planted by the water and sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of doubt. Drought, it never fails to bear fruit. That's true, right? And he says this. He goes, but listen, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Right? And then he quotes something they already know again. He goes, but this is what you know about the Lord. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to which his deeds deserve. So if you believe in divine blessing and judgment, what you believe is, is that God sees the human heart with enough clarity to determine what's really going on there. He said that here's the problem for us. You and I don't know what's going on there. Think about it this way, and we'll end with this little portion. Um, you know the most famous, the famous, most famous verse in the Bible is— don't judge, lest you be judged. Right? It's now the most famous in the Bible, isn't it? Right? Because all the non-Christians like to quote it. Um, what was Jesus really doing in that passage? I mean, why did he say that? Right? If, I mean, if you went out on, if you went like down to UW and, or like in, in down, downtown and you did, had a little microphone, you're like, so um, Jesus said, 
don't judge lest you be judged. Um, what do you think he meant by that? Well, he probably meant don't judge people. That's very clever. Um, what do you think, why do you think he said that? Well, I mean, and this is the answer you probably get 80% of the time, right? Well, because you're not in that person's life and in their head, and you don't know what it's like to be them, so, you know, how can you judge them, right? That's what you would get 80% of the time, right? Right? Yeah. That's totally not Jesus' reason. Okay? I think Jesus would completely disagree with that. Because here's what Jesus knows. We're all the same. <clears throat> We're all the same. So you, you know exactly what it's like to be them. You are them. Humans are almost exactly the same. And so the reason Jesus actually gives, I mean, think about what Jesus says. He says, okay, here's why you shouldn't judge. Because the way you're going to judge, you're going to get judged. He's like, but here's what it should look like, right? He's like, you've got a friend, a brother, right? And he's got a speck of dust, like sawdust in his eye, right? And he says, now your first implication is going to be to judge and be like, you've got that in your eye, you're a bad person, you're going to hell, Right? He's like, that's not a good idea because then God's going to judge you like that, which you totally deserve, and you don't want that. But he's like, now think about this. He's like, when you see the speck of sawdust in your eye, you can actually use your own depravity and your own deceitful heart to help you see the truth. Because the minute you see the speck of sawdust in his eye, your deceitful heart likes to affirm you to believe you're exceptional, right? Point four on that slide. I'm exceptional. He's got sawdust. I don't have sawdust in my eye, right? So your deceitful heart convinces you that you're exceptional and not like this person that you now can judge. And then you go, wait a second. He's got sawdust in his eye. And he apparently doesn't know it. And he's a human. And Jesus said something about, I wonder if I have sawdust in my eye and I don't know it. Right? See, Jesus is like, let's go through a thought experiment, right? And the minute you start thinking, what would it be like if I was that guy? I'd be walking around with sawdust in my eye, and I wouldn't know it. And you go, wait a minute, I'm a guy walking around, right? And he goes, then, what do you do? You go find a mirror, and you go, would you look at that, right? And he's like, you got a plank in your eye. It's much worse, right? And you go, I should take that out, right? And then what does he say about the other guy, Right? So then you go back to the other guy and you help take the speck out of his eye, right? So it's not that you don't confront him. It's you don't throw him away with judgment. You go to him therapeutically in the sense of healing. You first use it as an ability to see what's wrong with you, to use your own deceitful heart to help you see what's wrong with you. And you go, oh, right? You get help. And then you help him. Two people get helped instead of one person getting judged, the other person going to hell. Now, listen, Jesus is no Stephen Covey whatever, but that's a win-win. Right? And you see, the whole thing is not based on, you don't know what it's like to be me. That is idolatry. That's exceptionalist thinking. That's, listen, I'm, I'm different than you. What's wrong with you? That's not what's wrong with me. Not really. No, Jesus' logic is, what's wrong with that guy is probably wrong with you, so let's take a moment and deal with you. And then realize, because it was true about you and you're kind of a scumbag, you shouldn't treat him like he's a scumbag. You're the same thing. Show a little compassion, right? And you go over to that guy, and the only negative thing you ought to say to that guy is, why didn't you tell me I had a big piece of wood sticking out of my head? That's the only thing you can really say to that guy, right? And the whole thing is based on the premise that we're self-deceivers. That our judgment of other people isn't because we don't know what it's like to be them. It's because we don't know what it's like to be us. And that's why 
he can say, the heart isn't just desperately wicked, it's deceitful, and you can't get behind the layers of deceit. You see, many of us who are analytic people think that the emotional masses, again, another form of exceptional thinking, right? The emotional masses think with their feelings, their hormones, they do whatever they want. But us educated, more analytical people, we think about things through reason, and we don't act like the unwashed masses. And then you realize you have all the same confirmation biases in your analytics. It's just a whole lot more sophisticated, right? Because what happens is the 2008 housing market crashes and you did all that math analytically. Just the way you wanted to. And you realize that's true about your whole life. And you realize this is why the Bible claims we need a solution from the outside. That's why Christianity is not a derived religion like Buddhism and Hinduism. That a human being realized was enlightened to receive. It's a fundamental belief that we are never going to figure this out ourselves because there is a a layer of deceit further back than any regression we could possibly ever go in an introspective search to kind of be something interesting. I don't know what that is. Do you see the point there? And so you see, there is a wound And there is a balm. There is a cure and treatment for that wound. But do you remember what Jesus said in Mark 2? Maybe you don't know what Jesus said in Mark 2. He said, there's some people who's like, why is Jesus always around like hookers and tax collectors and like terrible people? And Jesus said, here's why. Because I'm a doctor and I've come to heal the sick, not the well. And you see, the, the assumption in that passage is not that the religious guys that asked him that question were well. It's a little snide. J- Jesus is sarcastic sometimes, but only, only when he's humiliating stubbornness. You'll notice this. I, when I came to High Point—this will be real fast, sorry. Real fast. When I came to High Point Church, the biggest reason a couple people didn't want to hire me was because I was sarcastic. And I said stuff I shouldn't say, like last week when I said, what the hell? I shouldn't have said that. was terrible. It was the other service. You probably didn't hear it. And I got in trouble for that, and I should have gotten in trouble for that because that was a stupid thing to say. And so they made me study the Bible on the language of God. And I was supposed to write a report for it, but that never happened. But here's one of the things I found out. As I studied, as I studied the sarcasm of God, here's what I found out. There are a number of places in the Bible where Jesus and where God and the prophets is derisively sarcastic. Derisively sarcastic, making fun of people in really, really abject and painful suffering, terribly. And you're like, now the shallow, younger person thing to do would be like, clearly sarcasm is fair game. <laughs> Oom. Right? And yeah, I've heard, listen, I've heard Christians in their 20s or teens or probably 30s say, hey, look, God's sarcastic. I can be sarcastic whenever I want. But if you actually look at the passage, there is only one way God is ever sarcastic. And the only time he's ever sarcastic is to humiliate stubbornness. It's the only time. When people are so stubborn that you can beat them to a pulp and they will not, they will not admit their brokenness and their self-deception. They will not at that point and at that point alone will Jesus or will the Lord through his prophets sarcastically humiliate and ridicule someone. It is a last-ditch effort 
to use their own depravity to break into their understanding of themselves. I think it's the only time when we really should use derisive sarcasm and be very careful about when we do it. Because here's the thing that we have to accept. And, and I would argue this, you can't be a Christian if you don't accept this. The condemning confrontation of God is not, first and foremost, a mark of his moral seriousness. It is a mark of his compassion. You cannot love the God of the Bible. You cannot love the God who is displayed perfectly in the man, Jesus Christ. You, you can't be transformed from the inside out in the way the gospel does it until you recognize that the severity of God is compassionate. And the reason it's compassionate is because of how sickly stubborn and deceitful we are with ourselves. And that that is the human condition that is destroying us all. And therefore, the true beauty of the God that is, is the extent of his compassionate aggressiveness, even to the point of humiliating derisive sarcasm if necessary to so affect us as to break this psychological sickness that we will not release. The truth that we will not know about ourselves. That our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And God would have us have the truth. So that the true balm of Gilead, the true treatment of John Hopkins, the real surgery that we require, the external revealed transformation of the power of God in Christ in us can do what it has to do. Let's pray. Father, thanks um, so much for being hard on us. Thank you for Jeremiah. We know that um, we don't imagine that that was a book that was pleasing to most people or to anybody. But Father, help us to, re to really rejoice, to be glad, to be self-forgetful, to realize that the reason you destroy our self-esteem in this way is because self-esteem is such a paltry idol that we were meant to be esteemed by the living God of all creation, not by our own little selves. And we pray, Father, that our ability to release the anxiety and the frustration and the anger that comes from defining ourselves from ourselves. We pray that you'd help us to see the data that would destroy our confirmation bias and lead us to a true knowledge of who we are and who you are. Lead us to the freedom of really believing that our hearts are deceitful. And lead us to the one whose heart has never lied to us. That every moment every statement, every wounding has been faithful. And every mark of your severity, where you reveal it so that we could know it, is a mark of your compassion and mercy to us. And help us to adore you for it and be happy in it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.